Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. The truth is, all that exists is God. The only thing that exists is God. And on the deepest, deepest level, what the world is, what our life is, what reality itself is, is just God having a conversation with himself. I mean, you can't get more macro than that. <laughs> that, that is the big picture. And if you ever want to know, like, what is going on in this world? What is going on in my life? That's it. It's just all that exists is God. That's the only thing that exists. And again, we're all emanations of that. And, and when you really, again, I'm giving you the, the giant macro look at reality, the giant macro look at life. Basically, everything is just divine energy and the flow of divine energy. That's, that is what's going on. And, and everything that we're studying, like the, 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 the focal points, the crystallization of that divine energy in this world are basically our souls, our bodies, and the mitzvot. These are sort of like, if you want to think in terms of acupuncture, right? These are the meridian points in terms of reality. And so basically, what you want to do, ideally, if you're like, if you have the consciousness and you're tuned into truth, basically, basically what you want is that divine energy to flow through you. That's the goal. And the way that you do that in the most practical way, because I know I'm talking about some giant concepts here, but I want to stay very practical at the same time. If you want, we're all part of that, the flow of that divine energy. If you want that energy to flow through you in the most positive way, the way to do it is through the Torah, through the mitzvot, but also just through kindness and through love and through being outwardly directed. When you're in a setting Ask yourself, who is in need of something that I can give? You know, because there's almost always, if you go into any social setting, someone who's sitting alone. Someone who doesn't have the social skills or is too shy or challenged by life. And what you can do in terms of giving them life Literally, you can actually give them life by just sitting with them. Or if you can't sit with them, just walking up to them and just saying, Hi, how are you? My name is X. What's your name? And believe me, in one minute's conversation, or possibly even less, you can make them feel like, Wow, I exist. And and I'll tell you, I'll tell you this teaching on a deeper level. So I know that this was one of Rabbi Shalom brought Allah Shalom's favorite teachings and that he would say it a lot, which is that when God revealed the Torah at Mount Sinai and he said, don't kill. So the people on the lowest level, spiritually speaking, heard don't take another person's life. The people on a higher level spiritually heard, don't embarrass another person in public. 
And the people on the highest level, when they heard don't kill, heard don't ignore another person. You see, because when you ignore someone, they feel like they don't exist. So on some level, they've just been killed. So the opposite is true. If you can go up to someone who is routinely ignored, and you can just look in their eyes and say, hello, hi, how are you? My name is so-and-so. How are you doing? All of a sudden, they exist again. And you're literally giving them life. And that is probably the greatest example of what I'm talking about in terms of the energy flowing through you and revitalizing someone else. I mean, at that point, you literally become the resurrecting do. You become tall. So another example is you're not allowed to pass a poor person without giving them tzedakah. Okay? Now, let's say you don't have any money on you. Or let's say it's Shabbos or whatever it is. So the Talmud says, say something nice to them. Right? So that's what we're talking about, giving, giving them life. But let's say for whatever reason you can't even do that. So you know what the Talmud says? Smile at them. And that, you ready for this? The white of your teeth will nourish them like milk. Now, I'm telling you, Reb Shlomo used to use the phrase quite a bit, you're giving me life. Or you're giving them life. Right? You, you can actually give life to a person. This is a very real thing. This is a very real thing. And if you think about it, what does a mother give her baby? Milk. In other words, milk is the currency of life. So when you smile at someone, you are imparting the currency of life to them. And this idea that you can give another person life, I want you to hear another version of this, okay? In Eastern Europe, the great Roshi Yeshiva, right? The, we're talking about the biggest tzaddikim right now, including the Chofetz Chaim. You don't see this practice around today, at least that I know of. But back in the day, this was done among the highest people. So there was someone who was deathly ill. We shouldn't know from it. We should all live long. But this person was really like at the door. And they would go around and they would collect days, months, years from living people to donate from their life to this person. Can you imagine? This was an actual practice that was done. And the highest people were doing it. And I know one story from this. And they came up to the Chovetz Chaim to collect time from his life to donate to this sick person. And he donated 10 minutes. He donated 10 minutes from his life. Now, that's amazing. That's amazing because if you don't have the ears to hear or the eyes to see, maybe you're going to think that was stinginess, God forbid. But the opposite. In other words, the Chofetz Chaim was using every single second of his life 
so intensely that 10 minutes really was something. 10 minutes was like a chunk of his life. And I'm telling you something in terms of time management, and I've seen this in my own life, which is if I'm really managing my life well in terms of using my time wisely, an hour is a long time. If you want more time in your life, use your time more consciously. And then you're going to find out how much time you have. See, it's a great tightrope walk that we walk in every area of our life, by the way. The great articulation of it is Lech Lecha. Because remember, that's how we meet Abraham Avinu. He's being told, go to the land that I'm going to show you. And I always like to point out, because it's such a foundational truth in terms of the life we live, is that God doesn't say go to Israel. He goes, go to the land that I will show you. In other words, where am I going? Just go. I'm going to show you. Okay. Just pick up everything and just go. Yeah, yeah. Just pick up everything and go. To where again? Oh, to the land that I'm going to show you. But where is that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to show you. (laughs) So if that sounds like our entire life, that's the point. It is just a miniature of our entire life experience. Where am I going again? Oh, to the land that I'm going to show you. <laughs> and so that's the lech of lech lecha. In other words, lech, like the, from the word holech, which means to walk, to go, right? So we're being commanded, go and never stop moving. Just go and never stop. But there's this other aspect to it. It's the lecha. Lecha means to yourself. So there's this amazing twin dynamic that's at work, which is that we have to go forward, we have to be outwardly directed, but at the same time, we have to be processing all of these stimuli, and we have to internalize them, and we have to review, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I saying what I'm about to say? Right? Like, How can I make sure that I'm proceeding through the moving forward part of life in a way that accurately reflects the greatest innermost aspects of myself? So that's the balance because someone can become too inwardly directed. That's the great challenge. I heard it phrased this way, paralysis through analysis right? That's where you overanalyze yourself so much that it shuts you down. It shuts down the moving forward part that's necessary. But again, the idea is everything is just God. It's all divine energy. And you want to make sure that that divine energy is flowing through you, moving through you and going forward. Now, I heard In the name of the Zohar, something very, very interesting. An analysis of disease, okay? So we should all live long and be healthy. But the Zohar compares disease, very interestingly, to a dam. Okay, so how how does a dam work? So water gets collected, and then there's a wall that stops the flow of water from going out. 
And if you want to access the water, you can open up a chute and some water will come out. But otherwise, the water just sits still in this place. Now, I think all of you know that there are problems that happen with stagnant water. In fact, stagnant water can become a breeding ground for malaria, to give you just a very real-world example of this. So now let's connect this. Now the Zohar connects this in terms of our daily life. You ready for this? There is divine flow, just like we've been discussing. There is a divine flow coming down into the world and to each of us, and it comes inside of us, and the question is, what comes next? Do we keep it all inside of us? Because if you keep it inside of you, then that energy becomes stagnate, stagnant, and it becomes a breeding ground for disease. So you have to make sure, all of us have to make sure, that the divine energy that is coming down from above into us is flowing out of us. That's, that's the idea. So there's this like very healthy circulatory system that's happening. The energy is coming down, it's coming into us, and it's got to come out of us and through us. So the way to ensure that that happens is very simply, I'm putting in the simplest terms, through mitzvot, through acts of kindness, through love, right? By being outwardly directed instead of overly inwardly directed. So this way we're actually, so, so it can be as easy as making sure that everyone who you interact with, you ask them, hey, how are you doing? What's going on with you? That's being outwardly directed. These are very grand ideas that I'm telling you right now, but the application is very basic. It's, it's, it's very basic, but it has to become um, second nature to us, right? Okay. So that way it all flows through us, and then we're in a good place. That's, that's what we want. That's what we want. Now, let's, let's go deeper. There's a question about this ladder that Jacob dreams of. Remember, Jacob goes to sleep, and it says that the place where he's sleeping, is you ready for this? The Holy of Holies in the base of Migdash. Now, the base of Migdash hasn't been built yet, but he lays down his head in the Holy of Holies. And remember, he's running for his life from his brother Asaph. And now he's on his way to the house of Lovin, where basically Jacob is going to get married and have all of his kids. He's been robbed of all of his belongings. And he goes to sleep in what turns out to be the Beis Hamikdash, the holy temple. But he doesn't know it at the time. And he dreams of a ladder with its feet on the ground going all the way up into the heavens. And there are angels going up and there are angels coming down. Okay. Now, Rashi says something which is so wonderfully clear. What are the angels that are going up? Since Jacob is leaving Israel, 
the angels, which are the Israel angels, right? That's like a very high level of angel. Since Jacob is leaving the land of Israel, those angels are going up. And the ones that are coming down, those are the Chutzla'aretz angels. Those are the outside of Israel angels. And those ones are coming down to escort him on his trip outside of Israel. So it's very, very neat, except there's a problem. And I heard this from Rabbi Top. Here's the problem. When Jacob has this dream about the angels coming down, he's still in Israel. <laughs> Do you hear the problem? The angels that are the outside of Israel angels shouldn't be coming down till he's outside the land of Israel. Very, very straightforward problem, okay? Now we have the opposite problem when Jacob returns to Israel. The angels that he's dealing with are the angels of Israel, except he's outside of Israel. <laughs> so how are the Israel angels dealing with him while he's outside of Israel? Okay, so you see the problem in two different ways. And now let's get back to this whole idea of divine flow, right? That just the world, the only thing that exists is God. Just God's divine energy and everything that we're learning, everything that we're experiencing is just this divine flow of energy that we want to harmonize. When we're able to harmonize this energy, that's the next stage of the destiny of the world, which we'll call the Zmana Tikkun or the Messianic era or whatever, whatever words you want to ascribe to it. But it's going to be this time of peace. And every time you do mitzvot and every time you learn Torah, you are harmonizing the energy of the universe. Okay, so that's just important. Again, I'm very consciously just trying to phrase everything in the broadest, most sweeping terms right now so that we understand what it is that we're dealing with, what, what is going on exactly. Okay, so now let's solve the problem of the angels because it's very much on this topic of divine flow. So why is it that the outside of Israel angels are coming to Jacob while he's still in Israel? Right? He's dreaming inside the base of Migdash. The Holy of Holies is where his head is. And yet the outside of Israel angels are coming down. You know why? Because he's on his way to leaving Israel. Because his intent right now is to go out of the land. Where your intent is, is where the divine energy comes down to assist you to realize your intent. And now let's do it the other way. When he's heading back into Israel, even though he's not in Israel yet, the angels of Israel are coming to assist him in his journey to Israel. In other words, in the direction that you're pointing is the energy that comes down to assist you in your journey in that direction. So... Rabbi Tom mentioned two other things which flesh out this idea. So he said, if you've got a ladder and someone's on the eighth rung and someone's on the second rung, who's higher? And the answer is, it depends on which direction you're going in. <laughs> right? Like, like our first instinct is to jump and go, the person on the eighth rung is higher. But if the one on the eighth rung is heading down and the one on the second rung is heading up. So it depends on which direction you're going in. And then he mentioned something else. 
How far is the distance between east and west? A million miles? A thousand miles? Right? It's, it's one turn of your body. <laughs> it, you can be facing east, and then you turn around, and you're facing west. So, so let's say you're sad. Or let's say you're down. Or let's say you're feeling challenged, or whatever it is. And you open up a Torah book for inspiration. So now that's the direction you're heading in, right? In other words, the how instantaneous a change can happen is, I think, often lost on us. How long does it take to change? One second. One second. Because the world itself is incredibly dynamic. All of the energies of the world are incredibly dynamic. And the world is being constantly renewed, which means that you can tap into the newness of the world at any single moment and change directions at absolutely any single moment. And I'll tell you something, just a, just a beautiful story. It's so deep. So the Chos of Lublin told his Hasidim that anyone who doesn't see the Riminover Rebbe during their lifetime is going to have to give an account in heaven. The Riminover Rebbe was very great. So Motzei Shabbos, the Hasidim all kind of piled into a wagon and they headed off to see the Riminover Rebbe. And the Riminover Rebbe was like very surprised to see this group of Hasidim coming to see him. And he asked, you know, what's going on? Why are you here? And they said, because the Chos of Lublin said that anyone who doesn't see you during their lifetime is going to have to give an account in heaven. And the Riminover thought about it. He said, when did he say this? And they said, he said this on Shabbos. And now it was Motzei Shabbos, it was after Shabbos. And the Riminover thought about it and said, who knows if it's still true? Now, that's the end of the story. If you think that the Riminover did anything bad between, <laughs> between that space of time and that's what he was alluding to, who knows if it's still true? I promise you that's not what Pshad is. I promise you that's not what the story is saying. Things are constantly changing. Constantly changing, constantly changing, constantly changing. And so you can look at that as a ongoing invitation to renew yourself and to change directions. And that's the positive way of taking it. But the Riminover Rebbe and his great Sitkis and his great righteousness saw it as a humbling standpoint. Saw it from the place of humility and said, okay, so the Chos of Lublin thought that I was on such a high level moments ago. But now it's a new world. Who's to say it's still true? <laughs> Do you understand? Do you understand how he's coming from this, from a place of complete anava, from total humbleness? It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. So now I want to tell you something that the Medrash says. 
about this, the angels going up and down. And this was new to me. I, I think this is beautiful, you know? So up in the heavens, up in the heavens, there's the image of Yaakov Avinu. So what does that mean exactly? Let's just say it means that Yaakov Avinu is the ultimate tzaddik, right? Remember, it says, Titan emes le Yaakov, give truth to Yaakov, which means that Yaakov is the foundational stone of truth. So, so let's, let's say that's our working definition of what it means that Yaakov Avinu's image is on the Kisei covered the throne of glory. It means truth. So, so what does it mean? The Medrash says, what does it mean that the angels are going up and they're going down? So the angels are going up to see the Yaakov Avinu above. And they're going down to see if Yaakov Avinu really measures up to that image of the Yaakov Avinu in the heavens. Isn't that interesting? And now listen to a slightly different version from another Medrash. The angels are going up from having seen Yaakov Avinu. The greatness of the Yaakov Avinu below and they're going up and they're telling the angels, you got to see this guy. <laughs> and so the angels above are coming down below to see for themselves. Because they heard amazing word of mouth from the other angels who just checked him out below. And it's like, oh, you got to check him out. And so the angels from above are coming down below because they want to see for themselves. You see how it's two sides of the same coin? On the one hand... The angels are going up above. They're seeing the image. And then those same angels are coming down below to see, does the one below measure up? And the other version of the Medrash is the ones, the angels are looking at him down below, are amazed, and then going up to tell the other angels, you got to check out this amazing Yaakov Avinu. And, and so now a new crop of angels are coming down below to see how amazing he is. Because if something is true, if something is true, remember, how do we spell, remember, Yaakov represents truth. And how do we spell truth? The word emes, emet, how do we, how do we spell it? Aleph, mem, taf. It's the first letter of the aleph face, the middle letter of the aleph face, and the last letter of the aleph face. Which means if something is true, it's true from the beginning to the end, or in the context of what we just learned, it's true from the heavens above to the earth below, from the earth below to the heavens above. And that's Yaakov. That's Yaakov. So at this moment, Yaakov is in a place of turmoil. And yet at the same time, the angels are comparing him favorably to the heavenly ideal of what he can become. So how do you reconcile those two things? On the one hand, it seems like he's in a very low place, and yet the angels seem to be testifying to the fact that he's in a very high place. And the breakthrough that 
that Yaakov makes at this moment, which reconciles these two seeming opposites, is that Yaakov realizes that God is in the hiddenness. And that is a breakthrough. You see, a lot of us never get to that place. We get to the place where we feel like, okay, my life is going well, or I just was at this incredibly inspiring event, and now I'm seeing God and everything like that. And yet when we're in a place of challenge, which is, for better or for worse, often frequent, and many times the majority of our lives, we don't see God. But the breakthrough that we have to make is that we have to understand that God is in the hiddenness as well. That we're also completely interacting with God. And that God hides himself within the hiddenness. And that a lot of times that why God hides himself within the hiddenness is because he's giving us something that we need that he can't give us in his most revealed form. So it gets translated to us through the agency of the hiddenness of our circumstances. But it's no less God who's making that direct transference to us. One of the amazing teachings that I heard, and I have, I, I really feel that this was Reb Shlomo personified in this mushal, although this, this example is generations and generations before he lived, is the mushal, the parable, is about a king at a time of war. And now imagine the king wants to send a message behind enemy lines. So the messenger has to go through the battlefield in order to get the message that the king wants to send across. Now, if you were to dress up this messenger in the royal garb of the king, and he walks through the battlefield, he's going to get killed immediately. <laughs> the enemy forces are not going to let this revealed messenger of the king through. But if the messenger doesn't dress in that revealed way, then he can get through enemy lines. So I think that's a great description of Reb Shlomo. I think Reb Shlomo was someone who is absolutely giving over the deepest Torahs, the deepest truths about Hashem. And because he didn't wear the classic garb of the greatest rabbis in the world, and as a result, he was able to get into more places. He was able to get through the enemy lines, so to speak. So even in the darkness, even in the darkness, God is there too. And once you know that, then you're really then you're really in touch with the truth. But again, life is complicated and the world is a confusing place. So you have to make sure that you're accessing the right sources, right? Don't misinterpret what I'm saying and say, oh, therefore the Torah's truth is hidden and you can find the Torah truth in other traditions and things like that. Don't, don't go to that place because that's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying maintained the truth of the Torah in the darkness itself, because you want that ultimate truth. You want to cleave to that truth, because otherwise you're just going to get confused, and you're going to take very deep teachings that we're saying right now, and you're going to misapply them, and your life is going to go into la-la land.
so Yaakov is in the house of Lavan for 20 years, which is a really long time. And Kabbalistically, we say that Lavan was actually the reincarnation of the Nachash, the snake from the Garden of Eden. That Lavan was actually the reincarnation of the Nachash, the snake from the Garden of Eden, which means that he was really a bad guy, <laughs> really bad. Not only that, but he's reincarnated again as Bilaam, who like is the one who tries to curse the Jewish people. So he's like as bad as it gets. In terms of energy lines, he's like the the worst. So Yaakov, it's very, very amazing that Yaakov, who's the presence of truth in the world, he has to exist in this exceedingly corrupt environment. And that's actually where all the tribes are born also. So it, it's quite startling. So again, to put it back into this idea of the flow of energy, what, what Yaakov is confronting is the most cacophony that can possibly exist, the most disorder that can exist. And then he's leaving and taking that energy and harmonizing it and elevating it in the most amazing way. So that, that's a way of looking at it that I think is really an x-ray of the soul of the Jewish people of what our mission is in the world in terms of confronting all this cacophony, all this disorder and disharmony, and to try to harmonize it. You know, Reb Shlomo said something so beautiful. He said, what's peace? What's shalom? So a lot of people think that if you agree with me and you do what I say, then we can have peace between us. He said, but think of it in a musical way. If everything were the same note, do you know how boring that would be? <laughs> he says, he says things can be different notes, but then they're in harmony with each other. In other words, everybody can be different, but we just have to be getting along and loving each other. If we can do that, then there's no problem that you are one way and I'm another way. It's all good because there can be harmony amidst differences, right? And if you look at actually, you know, a breakdown of the Jewish people themselves, we are from the four corners of the world. We're black, we're white, we're from north of the border, we're from south of the border, we're from every different country. You know, there's no one kind of Jew, really. And so the Jewish people themselves encompass this incredibly diverse spectrum. And that's why it's so important that within our people, that there's peace within our people, not just between our people and other people. But how can we harmonize the outside energy if we are in disharmony internally? That's why the idea that we're hating each other, that we're hating each other for no reason, is so horrible. Because we're crippling our own ability to create harmony in the outside world. If we're out of tune, how are we going to put the rest of the world in tune? You know, one of the things that we experienced when we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, the Medrash says that our souls flew out of our bodies, right? God spoke and our souls flew out of our bodies. And then God resurrected us 
right? The mass population of the Jewish people, approximately two and a half million people are mass resurrected. And God speaks again, and our souls fly out of our bodies again. And then God has to bring us back to life again. But the point that I want to tell you is, what did we see? We're receiving the Torah. What did we see when our souls flew out of our bodies? You know what we saw? We saw that the Torah is also in the heavens. (laughs) The Torah is not just this book that the whole world is made out of Torah. Do you understand? This This is the whole world. And we saw that these words that God was saying is not just true from the standpoint from below, but it's also true above. And the angels are also studying the Torah. But you want to hear something amazing about how the angels study the Torah? Different from the way we study the Torah? And we're, we're studying the same Torah. Remember, I always like to say, that what's the Torah? Is the infinite compressed into the finite. The infinite compressed into the finite. So the the whole world's made out of the Torah, but it also exists like you can open up a book and there's the Torah. But if you think that the Torah is limited to a book, you don't understand what the Torah is. We're talking about all that exists is God. And it's just this, this flow of energy, right? And when that energy is completely aligned, then we have the next ear. We have perfection. We have the harmony of existence. And the amazing thing is, is that every time we're just being outwardly directed and we're allowing it to flow through us and we're expressing concern for another person, that's harmonizing all the worlds. It's crazy. Because it's crazy to think that simple acts that we do have such cosmic repercussions. There was a, a, a great teacher in our community, should rest in peace, Yadidya Blanton. And he used to like to give an example that, that at NASA with the space program, you know, in Houston, they would hit a button and this button would adjust some setting in a rocket or a satellite billions and billions of miles away from the planet Earth. Can you imagine? You're hitting a button in Houston, and it's like rotating a satellite or taking like an arm out of a satellite billions and billions of miles away. So it's the same thing with the mitzvot. You do something between people, and remember, each one of us is a microcosm of the entire universe. So two microcosms of the universe are like expressing something, and the, re- and the reverberations are happening in this domino effect to universes, which are microcosms of larger universes outside of us. It's wild. It's wild. But what it tells you is that Everything matters. Everything is meaningful. You see, part of the plague of modern society is this idea that 
nothing really matters. Right? You know, you can have a Holocaust, but life goes on. Right? And that, like, there's nothing... There, there's this line in this TV show that I'm watching that's just... You know, it's talking about this certain corporation. It's talking about, I won't mention any names, but let's just say a fairly notorious news organization. And someone who's like running that notorious news organization, you know, is trying to coerce someone to do to do something. And that person who's being coerced says, what if I just report this conversation, which is very embarrassing, by the way, if this were to get out. What if I just report this conversation to the press so that the world knows what you're saying to me? And the person responds like, you think at that point, wow, like I thought all the power was with this, you know, this news boss, but really it's with this other person who's threatening to out that person. And then the news boss says, um, you're forgetting one thing. We don't get embarrassed. Nothing embarrasses us. And it's like, uh-huh, wow. <laughs> and that person who thought that they had the goods on the person because they could humiliate this organization. Oh, but you mean there's something in today's society called not being able to be embarrassed or being beyond humiliation <laughs> because nothing really matters anymore? So whether we're conscious of it or not, it's a message that we're getting sent all the time. And that's why this, what I'm telling you right now is like so necessary. This is like the real oxygen. This is the real truth, which is that everything matters. Everything matters. Everything matters. And anything that you do from your heart is not, is not small. And I know I'm, I'm probably, I'm probably <laughs> the last person in the world, right? For this, but this TV show Stissel, I'm sure everyone's seen it at this point. For some reason, I've resisted it. I don't, I don't know why exactly. But they just started a new season, third season. So my wife said to me, "Okay, you can." I said, "Can I start with the third season <laughs> instead of just?" And she said, "Yeah, you can just start with the third season, but, but watch the last episode of the second season before you see the third season." It was so beautiful. Anyway, I'm telling you this for a reason. Because, you know, I think everybody knows, anyone who knows anything about the actors knows that they're not quote-unquote religious, quote-unquote observant, which is interesting since they're playing the most religious people in the entire world. I mean, they're playing like hardcore Hasidim from Measharim. So it's, it's fascinating that, you know, ostensibly they're not religious. So I was discussing this this morning over coffee with my wife. And I was saying, but you know what? They're not acting, though. <laughs> because their souls are religious. <laughs> they have souls. And their souls are, are religious. And this performance is coming from their soul. So what they are expressing is absolutely truth. You see, you know, we, we allow conversion 
in the Torah, if someone is not Jewish and they want to become Jewish, they can become Jewish. That's that that is that is something that can happen. We don't we don't really promote it. We don't campaign for it for various reasons. The rabbis decided like two thousand years ago that we weren't going to be a missionizing religion. And there are reasons for that. But but for whatever it is, but nonetheless, if someone wants to become Jewish, they can become Jewish. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is because if someone who's Jewish converts from Judaism, God forbid, we don't recognize that conversion. <laughs> In other words, you can become Jewish, but you can't become not Jewish. <laughs> if you're Jewish, you're Jewish. You can be wearing, you know, like a nine pound cross around your neck. <laughs> and you're still Jewish. It didn't change. It didn't change. So it's it's quite an amazing thing because this is a condition of your soul that's unchanging because it's tapping into the essence of the world, which is unchanging. So these performances, it's like the problem is, is that people get caught up with the idea, I'm religious, I'm not religious. Everybody's religious. <laughs> because how are you even alive? It's because you've got a soul. And what's your soul? It's a piece of God. So the only question is, at what level are you recognizing the truth of your own existence? That's, that's the only question that's at play. Because you're already religious. It's just, are you acknowledging that? Or are you not acknowledging it? And again, most people, and I would say almost everyone, is a believer. It's just a lot of people don't like to express it that way for various reasons. And a lot of people have never met that person who puts it into a language that they can relate to. Or as Reb Shlomo would say, they've never been emotionally moved. They've never been touched, so to speak. That's why music is such an awesome tool for like opening up someone's heart and mind. Some people, you can, you can sit them down with the greatest lecture in the world. It, it won't budge them an inch. But if you play a song that resonates with their soul, they're going to be crying like a baby. And it's just a question of how do you communicate it? How do you get that energy right to flow out of them? Or how do you get them, them to open up their minds so that they recognize that there's energy coming down to them for every single moment? Just sort of like making them conscious of that divine flow of energy and the fact that they exist within it. So Jacob has two wives. We have Leah and we have Rachel. And Leah stands for the hidden world. And Rachel stands for the revealed world. And one of the reasons why we're talking about Rachel's beauty, because the Torah does mention her physical beauty, is because Rachel stands for the revealed world. And so the way Yaakov wants to marry Rachel first and then Leah and that's because the normal order of advancing in understanding 
that you begin with the material world. And then when you understand the material world, you can then advance and understand the esoteric, the spiritual world. So the normal order would be for Yaakov to marry Rachel first, understanding the material world, and then marrying Leah second, the esoteric realms. Okay? You know, it says that the the eyes are the window to the soul. And Leah's eyes, they there was something that was a little bit sort of cloudy about them, so to speak. That's my word. But in, in other words, in other words, there was something hidden, even in a revealed way. Her hiddenness was revealed. Leah's hiddenness was revealed. Now, I want to tell you something, which is, I think, awesome. Which is, what happened in terms of the switching between Rachel and Leah? You see, when they get switched, Yaakov says to Lovin, what did you do to me? You're giving me the, the, the hidden world before you're giving me the revealed world. Do you understand how from Yaakov's point of view, everything has been turned upside down? The whole normal journey has been completely been discombobulated. So why did Yaakov have to go through that at all? The answer is because when Esav abandoned his role among the Jewish people, that the whole spiritual mission of Esav was also given over to Yaakov. Because remember, Esav was the eldest on some level, and he was supposed to marry Leah. And that's why it says her eyes were so, you know, whatever it was, so weak, or, or whatever it was, whatever description is, is used to describe her eyes, because she cried her eyes out that she had to marry Esav. So much so that she changed her des- destiny. Can you imagine? So the description of her eyes, because she was so weak from tears, is actually a reference to her actual hiddenness. I'll tell you something else. If you take the letters of the, the, the name Leah and rearrange them, you know what it spells? Ohel, which is a tent, which is hiddenness. In other words, Leah herself was hiddenness. So why does Yaakov have to marry both of them? Because now that he has the birthright of the eldest, and now that Esav has left the scene, both of these wives now fall to Yaakov in terms of doing all of the heavenly work that they have to do together as couples now happens between Yaakov and the two of them. But I want to tell you about the switching of the order more, because I want to tell you something amazing, but you have to listen very, very carefully, okay? Yaakov knew that Lovin was going to switch the sisters under the chuppah. Yaakov knew in advance. And remember, Yaakov is dealing with Rachel, even though he's working seven years in order to marry her, and even though they're not married, nonetheless, they lived in the same place. 
right? They're talking during this time, during this during these seven years, right? So, so Yaakov and Rachel, Yaakov makes a plan, and here's here's the plan. Here's the sign. You know, they talk about giving over the signs, right? That Rachel gave over the signs to Leah. What was the sign? So, I learned this from the senior Rabbi Citron here in Los Angeles. Something amazing. I believe that he said it from the Ber Mayim Chaim, one of the great Hasidic commentators. Not positive, though. But something amazing. Here was a sign. What was Leah supposed to say under the chuppah? Right? Because he knew that it was going to be Leah under the chuppah. Because the father was going to switch them. What was what was Leah supposed to say under the chuppah? Um, Rachel. Right? Make sense? She was supposed to say, Am um, Rachel. But what was the sign? See, Yaakov knew that she's going to say, Am um, Rachel. That Leah's never going to say, Am um, Leah, because then the trick doesn't work. Then, then Yaakov knows that it's Leah. So he knows that she's going to say, Am um, Rachel. So that the sign that Yaakov made with Rachel is when you get under the chuppah, say, um, Leah. <laughs> because when Leah actually appears under the chuppah, she's never going to say, um, Leah. She's going to say, um, Rachel. So the true sign that you're Rachel is say, um, Leah. Because Leah's not going to say, um, Leah. Leah's going to say, um, Rachel. So if you say, um, Leah, then I'm going to know you're Rachel. So what happens? Under the chuppah, Leah, who's so holy, she's like the holy of holies. Remember, she's the mother of Mashiach. Leah can't lie. What does Leah say under the chuppah? I'm Leah. But that was the sign that it's really Rachel. <laughs> so Yaakov says, okay, now he knows, now, now he knows it's really Rachel. So it's good, because Leah said, I'm Leah. But Leah knows that Yaakov is an understanding. Leah knows that Yaakov thinks that it's Rachel under the chuppah. So Leah, from the standpoint of truth, says, I'm Leah. But for Yaakov, that was the sign that it's Rachel. He goes, no, I get it. I get it. No, she says, no, no, no. I'm Leah. Now, let me tell you why that's so deep. That's like endlessly deep. Because here, Yaakov knows that he's going to be tricked. Here, Yaakov comes up with a foolproof plan that he can't be tricked. Say you're Leah. And now, she's saying, I'm Leah, but the whole plan is getting turned upside down and he's still getting tricked while she's telling the truth. In other words, the destiny was that Yaakov had to marry both of them. So even though he absolutely found a way around it and she's actually reaffirming his plan that he's not being tricked, he's being tricked because that's his destiny to marry her. 
And it's when, you're when it's your destiny, you cannot get out of it. Even when you're outsmarting it, even when it's going according to your plan, which is outsmarting it, you're still getting outsmarted. Because God will have his way. So we have to know in terms of our own life. And I always like to, I always like to reference the cop shows, which is God tells us, we can do this the hard way or we can do this the easy way. <laughs> in other words, you're going to get what you're going to get. <laughs> you're going to get your soul fixing. But how are you going to get your soul fixing? Are we going to do this the hard way or are we going to do this the easy way? And so how we access that energy coming through us in our lives is dependent on how much we raise ourselves up. And the currency for raising yourself up, for raising ourselves up, is by flowing out in the world, being outwardly directed, by putting love in the world, and by putting Torah out in the world, and by doing mitzvahs. This is the way that we're able to make sure that to the extent that we have to go through life, and we all have challenges in every iteration, in every instance of this, it doesn't mean we're not going to have challenges. But the smoothest way that we can do it is by keeping the Torah, because that is the vibrational thing which is going to harmonize the energies of the universe. So I had an experience this week on Shabbos, actually. One came right after the other. It was, it was kind of like just almost disorienting. I don't know if anyone saw these emails going around. I didn't, by the way. But apparently yesterday was the ninth day of the ninth month and the ninth hour. So 999, right? And there was this sort of like campaign, this awareness campaign of this 999, like that this was an opportunity to pray, that people should pray. Now, a few days before that, for the first time in my life, I started learning this brand new book called Pis Piskesh, Amazing Divine Safer. And you know what I'm learning, among other things? The gematria of the number 999. And I'm like, and someone's telling me about 999, I'm like, I just learned about the gematria of 999. And by the way, it's a wild gematria. It's not like your normal gematria. It has to do with the architecture of the heavens and all the rest. And I'll, I'll just tell you, basically, it's talking about the interface, the borderline between the finite and the infinite. Okay? And the letter Aleph, which stands for God, Aleph is one, like God is one, so Aleph is like the highest, highest place in the heavens. So Aleph is also a Hebrew word, which means 1,000. So that borderline, like the closest you can get from the finite to the infinite, would be from the number 999 to 1,000. Do you understand? Because 1,000 is Aleph. That's the word in Hebrew for Aleph. So what's 999? 
So 999 is the gematria of the angel of this world. Okay? Not God, but lower level an angel, but and it's called the Sar Hapanim, the minister of the face, right? In Kabbalistic terms. So if you take the name of the angel, which we won't pronounce, but this angel Matat, that's not his full name, but that's what we can say. If you take the gematria of his full name and Sar Hapanim, it comes out to 999. <laughs> Remember, because angels are creations too. Within the infinity of God, angels are finite, very much so. From our perspective, angels are very expansive and spiritual, so they, they, they don't seem to be finite. But compared to God, everything is finite, right? Because everything is a creation compared to God. So it's this borderline, this borderline between the finite and the infinite. That's 999. So I thought to myself, look, I don't know much. But if it's the ninth month and the ninth day and the ninth hour, perhaps putting these two thoughts together, there's an opportunity to jump to the next level, <laughs> right? Maybe we're at a borderline. So we all daven together that whatever that next level should be for the world, for, for us individually, right? For the people of Israel, all together that we should be able to get to that next level and have vessels to hold the light. Remember, you always need vessels, meaning you need that. How do you make big vessels? By doing more, by being more outwardly directed. Then you can hold more light. So with that in mind, I want to tell you a new understanding that I got it's a Rashi talking about the six days of the week and the seventh days of the week and the seventh day of the week. And this phrase, Keheraf Ayin, that salvation can arrive in an instant. So I'm going to give you a, a new way of thinking of that phrase. Keheraf Ayin, in the blink of an eye. That's what it means. In the blink of an eye, salvation can come. So let's build up to it. You know, I heard from Rabbi barrel wine. If you think of the six days of creation and the seventh day of creation, they're actually made out of different stuff. Imagine a rolled up carpet and you roll out the carpet. That's the six days of creation. But the seventh day of creation, Shabbos, is made out of a completely different time-space entity. In other words, between the end of the sixth day and the beginning and, and, and the seventh day, there's a borderline that when you cross it, you're crossing from the finite into the infinite. Do you understand? And from the earliest time, our commentators have understood that the seven days of creation stand for the 7,000 years each Day stands for another thousand years. So that the Shabbos, the seventh day, correlates with the seventh millennium, which means the Messianic era. So that's why the Messianic era is called Yom Shekula Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. 
Now listen to what Rashi says. Rashi says that the that the borderline between the end of the sixth day and the beginning of the seventh day, in other words, from the finite to the infinite, you ready for this? Is a hair's breadth. That interesting? A hair's breadth. And then what did we say between the number 999 and 1,000? From the finite to the infinite is just one. It's a hair's breadth. Now we're talking about the architecture of the heavens, not time and space. But it's the same idea. A hair's breadth. And now I'll tell you the new idea. When it says salvation can happen in the blink of an eye, the way we normally understand that is it's almost like what we would call divrei chizuk, words of encouragement. That if someone is, is having a hard time, you could tell them salvation can arrive in the blink of an eye, meaning at any moment salvation can arrive. But now I want to give a different definition for it. If there's just a hair's breadth separating the finite from the infinite, that's why salvation can arrive in the blink of an eye, because all it takes is a blink of an eye to cross over the border. <laughs> in other words, the amount of time, the amount of time it takes to go from the finite to the infinite, from exile to salvation. All you have to do is cross over the hair's breadth of a border, and that can happen in the blink of an eye. So it's not encouraging words. It's actually a very literal explanation of how long redemption takes to occur. No time at all. Or to put it in the language that we said earlier, you just open a book and now you're in a different direction. And now the angels of Israel are flowing through you because that's the direction you're pointing in. Keheraf Ayin, in the blink of an eye, because it's all energy. So you can make it flow in whatever direction that you want. Once you become outwardly directed. And once you point your heart toward God. I saw something beautiful from Rabbi Biederman. And he said in Hebrew, lechatz means to be stressed out. And if you take the letter Hey, which stands for God, and you add a couple of Hey's to that word, stressed out becomes the word Hatzlacha, which means success. So he says we go from stressed to blessed the moment that we remember that God is in charge. Because again, we're harmonizing the energies of creation. So I just throw in one more thing. What is Jewish beauty? What does it mean to be beautiful? So, so Sarah, right, our, our Holy Mother Sarah, she, she was beautiful. The Torah says that she was beautiful. And even Abraham says that she was beautiful. But it's, it's a very interesting set of circumstances that he says this. There's a famine in the land of Israel. They have to go down into Egypt, which spiritually speaking is on an extremely low level. 
And remember, they've been married for decades and decades and decades at this point. They go down into Egypt. He looks at her and he says, you're beautiful. Now, seemingly, it's the first time that he realized that she was physically beautiful. So he's been with her for so many years. Like, how do you explain the logic of that? So I saw a commentary that I thought was very fascinating and applies to us in our daily lives. Because Mitzrayim, because Egypt was such a place of physicality, the energy of Mitzrayim was so physical that when he entered into Mitzrayim, into Egypt, he saw her through the energy that was extant there. In other words, he saw her physicality because the currency of the place was physicality. Do you understand? So he saw her on that wavelength because that's the wavelength that he was functioning in at that moment. And so he went, you're beautiful. So what does beauty really mean? Since she seems to be the paradigm of beauty. Okay, so we have to analyze it further. Let's look further into Sarah's beauty. And again, this all has to do with energy again. We're still on the same topic. So, so I heard this from Rabbi Tetz. You know, Sarah has another name. Before she's even called Sarah in the Torah, she's called Yiska. And Yiska, interestingly, is the same word as Schach. That's if you remember the, the palm fronds or the bamboo or whatever it is that we put on top of our sukkah, that's schach. Now, Yiska, her original name, Sarah's original name, means to gaze, to, as in to stare, to look at. And why was she called Yiska? Because people really liked to look at her because she was so beautiful. But again, yiska comes from the word schach. What is the halacha? What is the Jewish law regarding schach? So when you put it on top of your sukkah, it has to be arranged in a way where you can see through it and you can see the heavens. <laughs> Do you understand? When you're looking at schach, it's only schach if you can see through it and you can see the heavens. And that is Jewish beauty. Jewish beauty doesn't have to do with physicality. Jewish beauty means that you're a window that when people look at you, they see the heavens. They see God through you, through your actions. And so this concept of Jewish beauty is for men, it's for women, it's for old, and it's for young. It's for absolutely everybody. The idea being that you want to be that person who the divine energy flows through. And that you do it in such a way that anyone who deals with you understands that, that something is happening. And then at that point, you embody beauty. And so I just... Uh, I just conclude with a, a bracha that all of us should be beautiful. Okay. What follows now are some questions and answers. 
The way I'm understanding your question is, how can we cultivate more Yira, basically? Because if we, if we have Yira, and remember, Yira is, is alternately translated, and both these translations are true, as either fear of God or awe of God. And one awe of God is just a higher manifestation of, of, of Yira. But, but it's just this sort of like, just this very real sense that we're in the presence of something greater than ourselves. And that is, that is the core consciousness that everything is built on. Even love of God is, is, is built on. Now, in today's generation, if you get to Yira, this awe through love, or this awe brings you to love, whichever, whichever way, and remember, it's called the two wings of the dove, that you need this awe and this love. So what I'm hearing is, you're asking, how, how is it that we can cultivate a greater sense that we're in the presence of something awesome, which, is, which we are, which is God? How, how do you, and then the realer that, that consciousness is, the more careful we'll be in terms of the, the words that we'll use, or, or the actions that we'll make, or, or how we use our time, and things like that. And so one of the one of the ways of increasing Yira is absolutely just studying Torah. Because Torah Torah will do it. Torah is is a great gateway of doing it. Another way is going out into nature. Go to the go to an aquarium. I'm being totally serious. Go to the zoo. Go out into the forest. This is when you see like the breath of creation. It's just so awesome. Go to a place where you can actually see the stars blanketing the sky. You know, we have something, they, they call it light pollution. What, what is that? That's that there's so many street lights and neon signs and everything like that, that it, it, it creates this, this layer where you can't really see the stars. Like inside of a city, you can't see the stars. But if you go out far enough, you can actually see the stars blanketing the sky. In fact, there's this island in the Caribbean, which apparently is like the one of the peak places of seeing the stars in the sky. And it's, it's one of the places that I aspire to go one of these days. And, and people travel from around the world to go to this little nothing island in the Caribbean just because there's such little light pollution and such an awesome, awesome view of the stars. When you see that, that can create Yira. So, so I would say Torah study, and I would say, you know, if you, if you can get out to a place where you can see the stars at night, if you can get to a place where you can be even in a zoo or in an aquarium, all of those places will really help you. And, and there are also books that describe how absolutely phenomenal just the human body is and, and just the way, you know, everything is just so precise in terms of the way God runs nature, that when you read these things and you contemplate them, it just makes you realize that you're in the presence of something absolutely majestic. And then once you consciously know that, one's behavior will change. So sure, there's a, 
the the Hasidim were very very big about going out into the forest and talking to God. And remember, Rabbi Nachman gives us this great foundation that you have to talk to God like he's your best friend, right? That's that's huge because most people, when they talk to God, it's when they pray to God. And when they pray to God, they're reading words out of a book that mean absolutely nothing to them, and it's a totally alienating experience. So now let's put this together. For most people, the only time they're talking is when they're praying, and that's the time when they feel the least connected to God. (laughs) Do, do, Do you wonder why so many people feel alienated from God? Because the only time they're ever talking to God is in a way that guarantees that they're absolutely not connecting to God. And even more than that, they're actually being pushed away from God with the words that they're saying. So what's the solution? How do we get out of this problem? What's the antidote? And the antidote is what Rebbe Nachman says. Talk to God like he's your best friend. In other words, don't pray, talk. Don't pray, talk. And then when you start to talk with words that are actually coming from your heart, God will count those as the deepest prayers. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.